welcome. Thank you for being here. If you're watching, listening, um, thank you for joining us, and I hope that you're blessed uh, by this morning's message. This morning, we're going to continue on here with Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. Now, as we continue here in this chapter, we need to keep in mind that everything our Lord has been teaching and will teach on throughout this chapter grew out of a, out of a prayer meeting, a miracle, and an invitation to dinner that occurred back in the previous chapter, back in Luke chapter 10. Last week, when we covered verses 1 through 13, Jesus taught about the importance of prayer and how it, prayer, again, prayer has in a dedicated life. Well, this week, he will instruct us on two more topics. And then, Lord willing, when we finish off chapter 11 next week, um, we'll cover the fourth lesson. Now, all of us have decisions to make um, every day of our lives. Some of them small, some of them big, that will change the trajectory of our lives, that will change where our lives are going to be 20 years from now. Well, this morning here, Jesus is going to challenge each and every single one of us to basically get off the fence and pick a side. Here, what we're about to read, there is no choosing. You have to pick a side. You're either going to choose to be on God's side or on Satan's. You're either going to choose to be in the light or in darkness. That, that choice is yours, which side you want to be on, to pick a side. But staying neutral isn't an option. You can't choose to stay neutral. So with that, let's open up and ask the Lord to speak to us this morning. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for everyone that's here. We thank you that you've brought us here to, to worship you and to, to, to learn from you, to hear from you, Lord. I pray that as we read your word, that it will speak powerfully into our lives, into our hearts, into our minds, Lord. We want to hear from you. We want to learn from you, Lord. We want to, want to grow closer to you, Lord. So speak to us, Lord. Speak powerfully and, and pour your Holy Spirit upon this room, Lord. You've, you know why everybody's here. You know why every single person is here right now. There's a reason and purpose for it. So reveal it to them now. We praise you and honor you. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Luke chapter 11. Last week we left off in verse 13, so we'll be picking up in verse 14 here this week. Verse 14. Chapter, Luke chapter 11, verse 14. And the Word of God says, Now he was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon came out, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, He drives out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. And others, as a test, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. Knowing their thoughts, he told them, Every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction. And a house divided against it, him, a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say, I drive out demons by Beelzebul. And, I, and if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons drive them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. For if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, armed, guards his estate, his possessions are secure. But when one stronger than he attacks and overpowers him, he takes 
from him all his weapons he, he entrusted in and divides up his plunder. Anyone who is not with me is against me. And anyone who does not gather with me scatters. When an unclean spirit comes out of a person, it roams through, through waterless places looking for rest. And not finding rest, it then says, I'll go back to my house that I came from. Returning, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and settle down there. As a result, that person's last condition is worse than the first. As he was saying this, a woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the one who nursed you. He said, Rather blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. As you can see, the main topic of Jesus' teaching here was on Satan. And his purpose was to inform his followers that dedication is driven by a motivating force, either from God or from Satan and his worldly forces. So let's begin by taking a closer look at this lesson by breaking down this passage. When it comes to demon possession, it affects different people in different ways. Several weeks ago when we covered chapter 9, we looked at a story of a boy whose epileptic seizures had been caused by demonic possession. In our story here, Jesus found a man whom the demons had robbed him of speech. Luke tells us that after the Lord had driven out the evil, the evil spirit, the man who had been mute spoke, and that the crowds were amazed by what, they had, what had just happened. Others, however, became more openly opposed to the Lord. Now, there were two principal opposition groups, the accusers and the challengers. The first group were accusing him of driving out demons by the power of Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. For those who may not know, Beelzebub was a derisive name of the Philistine god Baal, who was considered the strongest demon of them all, the ruler of demons. In the hierarchy of demons, he was pretty much the highest one up there. The name Beelzebul literally means the Lord of the Flies. And again, it, it, it's, a, it's a derisive name. And the image that is being portrayed here is what you would see on the top of a poop pile. It's a bunch of flies gathered around it. The, again, the Lord of the Flies. The second group were the challengers who wanted to test him by demanding of him a sign from heaven. Now what's interesting about this group is that in light of the miracle that they had just seen, it wasn't enough. They wanted something bigger. They wanted something more spectacular. Now we'll go more in depth about this group when we get to verse 29. But here, what, what I want to, again, mention, that these two groups didn't phase the Lord. Because verse 17 tells us that he knew their thoughts, meaning he understood their motives for their charges and their challenges. So he takes them on. He takes them on one at a time, beginning with the group that was accusing him of working by the power of Satan. His response to the accusers were, was devastatingly simple. That consisted of just three arguments. First of all, in verses 17 and 18, the Lord pointed out that their reasoning was illogical. A king wouldn't fight his own army. Otherwise, the entire war would be lost. 
a family divided against itself would ruin the strength of its unity. Likewise, Satan would never use his power to exercise demons since they're a major part of his force. So if the claims about Jesus were true and he were, was a tool of Satan in casting out his underlings, how then would it benefit him? The answer is, it wouldn't. The point was that it was just ridiculous to think that the devil would oppose himself and obstruct his own purposes. And secondly, in verse 19, he points out that their charges, their allegations were inconsistent. The Lord reminded his critics that some of their own countrymen were at that very moment casting out evil spirits. Now, did this mean that they were also in cahoots with Satan? If not, then what makes them different from Jesus, who also was exercising demons in God's name? So Jesus challenged them to decide about who had the power to drive out demons, God or Satan? Then, drive out, um, I'm sorry, God or Satan. It had to be one or the other, but it couldn't be both. If Jesus acted by the power of Satan, then Jewish, Jewish exorcists depended upon that same power. So to condemn him was to condemn them also. If they didn't believe him, let alone their exorcist, if they didn't believe him, let their own exorcist be the judge and address the issue about who has the power to cast out demons. Now, thirdly, Jesus argues that their thoughts were based upon, faulty, upon a faulty perception. Here he informs them that if their exorcists are honest and agree that only God can cast them out, then that means that he's driving out demons by the finger of God. By saying that he was casting out demons by the finger of God, he was proving that not only was he working with God's power on his behalf, but also that as his representative, the kingdom of God has come upon them. So again, by saying this, Jesus wanted to show them how their false assumptions about him was the result of, cor of a corrupt perception about God. Had they had a correct view on God, they would have seen Jesus' miracles as proof that God's anointed ruler had appeared upon the stage of history. He was the finger of God acting on his behalf. After making those three arguments, he gives them a short parable to illustrate his point. A strong man may have well-trained guards with the latest weapons, the latest technology to guard his house and ensure his possessions, his family, everything that he has are secure. However, that powerful person will always have a fear. They'll always have a fear that someone stronger, someone more powerful, someone with better weapons, more training will come and take away all that he owns. What Jesus is dream demonstrating this parable is that the struggle on the spiritual level of existence, Satan and his forces versus the power of God, of Christ and the Holy Spirit, is subject to the same rules and principles as temporal conflicts. And you know what I mean. The stronger and more powerful force will win. Satan may have set up a strong dynasty on earth with no one able to threaten him. 
But in Jesus, God has shown himself to be stronger than Satan. He has taken away all his possessions and he has taken away the power of Satan. So the victory, my friends, is sure. The victory is ours. The victory is his. He is the stronger person that has come in and taken over. Now he concluded with a warning to the opposition that effectively turned the tables on them by telling them that he was, that he was essentially, um, that it was they, I'm sorry, not he, who were in alliance with Satan. And the proof of their demonic alliance was their actual opposition to Jesus. If they weren't with him, then they were against him. This also applies to us as well. See, because your soul, my soul, everyone's soul in this entire world is at stake. Neutrality regarding Jesus Christ isn't an option. In other words, you can't just be a fence-sitter, drink lemonade, and enjoy the battle between the kingdom of God and the power of Satan. No. Everyone has to take a side. And you may or may not know this, but at this very moment, right now, you're either on one side or the other. Jesus made it clear when he said in verse 23, anyone who is not with me is against me. This means that if you're not on his side, then you're on the opposing side. You're on Satan's side. You're against him. So whether you like it or not, if you're not in this fight, it's just up to you. Whether you like it or not, you're in this fight. It's just up to, to you to decide if you're going to be on the winner's side or on the loser's side. The Lord also adds, anyone who does not gather with me scatters. This is what he's basically saying here. I am here to gather a flock of sheep to be God's people. So you must choose. Will you help me gather the flock? Or are you working alongside my enemy to scatter my people in places where they'll, they're just going to have a hard time finding me? In those deep, dark places where those holes, those crevices, those bottomless pits that it's going to be nearly impossible for them to crawl out of. Are you scattering them or are you gathering? Again, the point here is clear. You're either working with God to gather more people into his kingdom or or you're working with the enemy to scatter them. There isn't an in-between. There isn't a neutral option here. You're doing one or the other. Therefore, the question Jesus wants you to answer is this. Are you dedicated to him and God's kingdom or to Satan? Now in verse 24 to 28, Jesus issues a warning about spiritual indifference and explains what true blessedness is. So to illustrate that mere repentance or partial reformation in an individual life is insufficient, the Lord tells a story of a man and a demon. The story paints a picture of a demon who had made his home in a man, but for some unknown reason, it decided to leave his house and go elsewhere. Unable to find rest anywhere else, the demon decides to go back to the house he came from because he felt comfortable there. He 
He knew it. He was familiar with it. But when he arrives there, when he arrives at the unoccupied house, it looks clean, neat, and inviting. So what does the demon do? He goes and brings seven more demons, more evil than itself, to join him in settling down in the house he first left. And as a result, that person's last condition is worse than the first. Now, why do you think the demons returned and wrecked havoc in the man's life? Well, here's the answer. Because he was content to have, to have a nice, orderly life without demons. He did not bother to invite God to, become, to come and dwell within. He should have listened to Christ's words, filled his life with the practice of those words, and had a future to look forward to with Christ. This is the warning for those who think they, they can remain neutral after personally being affected by the power of God, after seeing and experience God work powerfully, unless Christ enters by faith and indwells the person, there's nothing, uh, and indwells the person, um, there's nothing to prevent evil from coming in and to keep them from indulging in vile sin. As a recovering alcoholic, I've been to several recovery meetings. Um, I've been to AA meetings. I've been to other types of meetings but where addicts have gone and, and shared their stories and they're trying to, to, to get their lives back together. And many times, a lot of, uh, and I've seen this, heard this, they sh they'll share their story how they've been clean for several years, many, many years. But there's an incident that happens or, and they relapse. They easily, they quickly fall and they relapse. And I think that, and I believe after, again, hearing this, these stories is that they haven't fully dedicated themselves to Christ. They haven't fully allowed Him to come in and reign supreme in their heart, to fill them, to be filled by Him, to be to be filled by the Holy Spirit. Because once He comes and fills your heart completely, you don't need anything else. You don't need junk. You don't need all that. You don't need alcohol. You don't need drugs. You don't need friends. You don't need, you know, riches. You are completely satisfied. Those addictions will always be there. But during a moment of crisis, during a moment of, of uncertainty, when you're being wrung, when, when life has just put, put all kinds of pressure on you, you can stand strong in the Lord. You know that the Lord is there with you and that you don't need anything else to help you. Now here Jesus makes it clear that if someone is freed from the grasp of a demon but doesn't embrace the Lord, demons will return to that individual seven times worse than before. This explains why, although psychology and psychiatry might help someone for a short time, he will end up worse than before if the Lord isn't the, at the core of the healing process. Why? Because reformation, apart from regeneration, only leads to greater frustration. Pastor David Guzik said, the heart of a man has a vacuum-like nature to it. It has to be filled. If we empty our heart from evil without filling it with Jesus and His good, evil will rush in again to fill it. And sometimes, worse evil 
than before. Now this also applies uh, sorry, sociologically, culturally, and individually. We'll march in the streets to ban abortion, we say. We pass laws against it. We'll elect candidates to outlaw it. We'll turn the moral side of the country against it by reformation and legislation. The result? Seven times the evil has come in the form of RU486, a pill that causes abortion chemically and quietly. And you can name other laws that have been fought in Congress, in the Supreme Court, that has brought this country down morally. Yeah, a lot of great things have happened, but, you know, things aren't any better. Why? Reformation without regeneration just makes things darker. The first one was reformation apart from regeneration only leads to greater frustration. This one here, reformation without regeneration just makes things darker. The real issue is that people must be born again. They must open the word of God to guide them. Therefore, it's not our job as ministers or as ambassadors to get people to clean up their act. Our call, my call, your call, is to introduce them to the person of Jesus in order that they might be born again, in order for Christ to change them, to regenerate them. Therefore, in answering those who accused them of working by the power of Satan, Jesus told them that he had not merely come to fight against evil, but to bring, God, bring God's good news into our hearts. He didn't, merely, he didn't come merely to empty the house, but to fill it with himself. Well, as he was saying this, these things, a woman in the audience interrupted and pronounced a blessing on Jesus' mother. Now her intent was to honor the woman who had bore and nursed Jesus so that, that he could do all, that, all the good that he was doing. However, the Lord's attention, the Lord turned the attention away from his mother and from the woman who may have possibly been expecting a blessing or accommodation or maybe a good word for saying what she said. But rather than um, giving special homage or attention to his physical family, he turned attention, he turned the attention to those who inhabit the kingdom of God. Now his statement, what he said, was in no way demeaning to his mother, demeaning to Mary. But it does honor and bless the one who keeps, who hears and keeps God's word. This is the blessed place. Trapp said this, his disciples were more blessed in hearing Christ than in bearing, than his mother in bearing him. Let me repeat that. His disciples were more blessed in hearing Christ than his mother in bearing him. The Lord's point then should be obvious. True blessing comes to those who hear and obey God's word. It doesn't come from riches. It doesn't come from houses. It doesn't come from your career. It doesn't come from the promotion. It doesn't come from um, getting all kinds of degrees, getting into the highest office in, 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 in power. It doesn't come with having more children, leaving your wife, leaving your husband. It doesn't come by 
pornography. It doesn't come by um, drugs. No. It comes from hearing and obeying God's word. That's where true blessing comes from. Jesus said in John 14, 21, The one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. I also will love him and will reveal myself to him. You see, dedication to Jesus involves more than saying good things about him. Yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah, you know, he's a, he was a great teacher. He loved his people. He wanted great things. He didn't want to see anyone suffer. He was a beautiful, beautiful human being. That's not dedication. It, it, well, it isn't, really. Dedication to Jesus means hearing the word of God and to keep or obey it. That's what dedication to Jesus is. Well, in the next section we're about to read, Jesus will be explaining the second topic of today's lesson, the goal of dedication. So let's go back to our Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 11, verse 29. As the crowds were increasing, he began saying, This generation is an evil generation. It demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah came, became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up as a judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and look, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up, stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching and look, something greater than Jonah is here. No one lights a lamp and pushes it in the cellar or under a basket, but on a lampstand, so that those who come in may see its light. Your eye is the lamp of the body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is also full of light. But when it's bad, your body is also full of darkness. Take care then that the light in you is not darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light, with no part of it in darkness, it will be entirely illuminated as when a lamp shines its light on you. Here, what we just read, Jesus uses three illustrations to teach that the goal of being dedicated to Jesus is to become an example of Christ's light in the world. Now, in the previous section, the Lord was primarily addressing those who were accusing him of driving out demons by the power of Satan. In this section, he returns to the issue raised by the second group in verse 16 that were challenging him to perform a spectacular sign from heaven. So, as the crowds were increasing, as they were getting bigger, and bigger and bigger. He responds to their request by ascribing the Jewish generation in which that was living at that time to an evil generation. And why is that? Because they had the privilege of being in the presence of God's Son to hear His words and witness His miracles. But because of their hard hearts, stubborn pride, selfish attitudes, they didn't understand. They were blind. They couldn't see how blessed they actually were. 
And now they were pretending that if they could only see a mighty supernatural work in the heavens, they'd believe in him. It was all fake. They didn't mean what they were saying. Jesus knew that if a powerful miracle like making a mute man talk again wasn't enough to satisfy them, then a powerful sign from heaven wouldn't either. Just ask all the people in the Bible and, and all those stories who saw undeniable evidence of God's powerful hand at work, yet they refused to believe, listen, and obey. Think of Pharaoh. Pharaoh's a good example. God did some powerful stuff there in Egypt to show them, to tell, to warn Pharaoh and to, 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 to the message to let his, pe- let his people go. But he refused. Time after time until his firstborn son had to die. But even then, after that, he realized what the mistake he made and still went after them, tried to chase them down. He paid the consequences for that, but I really believe that if God came down right now, if, if we saw a bunch of angels or even the hand of God, His finger, right in the sky, John 3.16, there may be a lot of people who will come to believe, but they, there's, there's, there'll be a lot more people that are just going to explain it away as some kind of with, with science or you know some kind of freak phenomenon and they they just they wouldn't believe and it's crazy because a lot of people that's what they ask for lord prove yourself show yourself show me you exist yet when he does that's not enough they need more we're crazy in that way that's how humans are sad so he tells them nope ain't gonna do it no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the sign of Jonah Jesus was referring to was his death burial and resurrection see just as Jonah was delivered from the sea after being in the well's belly for three days and three nights, so the Lord would rise from the dead after being in the grave for three days and three nights. Jonah also represented a call to repentance and faith to the people of Nineveh. When they believed and obeyed after his brief sermon, Jonah brought the people of Nineveh away from the verge of disaster to faith and repentance. Similarly, Jesus brings the same sign to this generation, a sign that God is calling a nation to repentance. In the next illustration, the Lord tells of how the Queen of the South came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And you can read about that story in 1 Kings chapter 10. During her visit, she didn't see a single miracle. But if she had lived in the days of the Lord, she would have easily believed and she would have easily accepted him. Therefore, she will rise up at the judgment against the men who were privileged to see the supernatural work of Jesus, yet rejected him. Now, a greater than Jonah and a greater than Solomon had stepped on the stage of human history, but this generation wouldn't listen. He further explains in verse 32 that because the men of Nineveh repented at Jonah's preaching, they'd bear witness against this generation in the final judgment. Due to unbelief, many today look at the story of Jonah and just see it as a fictional tale that didn't really happen. Come on. 
the belly that was a person really in the belly of a whale? Did a whale come and swallow a person and keep them in there? Scientifically, it, it, it's impossible. People will say. But was the story real? Well, the Lord seems to think so. Jesus seems to think so. As he told it, Jesus spoke of Jonah as an actual person in history. He said that he was in the belly of a whale for three days and three nights. God's son affirmed it. He confirmed it. That he was real and that it actually happened. But that he spoke, anyways, he spoke of Jonah as an actual person in history, just as he spoke of Solomon, who history does prove now. We have proof that Solomon was an actual king in Israel. Spurgeon once said, I would recommend you either believe God up to the hilt or else not to believe at all. Believe this book of God, every letter of it, or else reject it. There is no logical standing between the two. Be satisfied with nothing less than a faith that swims in the deeps of divine revelation, a faith that pedals about the edge of the water. A faith that pedals about the edge of the water is poor faith at best. It is a little better than a dry land faith, but it's no good for such. So those who say they, be, they believe because if they could see a miracle with their own eyes are terribly mistaken. You see, faith isn't based on evidence of what you can hear, see, taste, or touch. It isn't based on our senses. Rather, faith is based on the living Word of God. If someone won't believe that the Word of God, about what the Word of God says about Jonah then they're going to have a hard time believing about what it says regarding the resurrection. In Romans ten seventeen, it says, Faith comes from what, is, from what is heard. And what is heard comes through the message about Christ. Whether you're a believer or not, you need to be careful of not developing an attitude that demands a sign. Why? Because it isn't pleasing to God. You see, if you need a sign to believe, as I mentioned, that's not faith. It's rather sight. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5-7, we walk by faith, not by sight. Therefore, whenever you're tempted to demand that God give you a sign, keep this in mind. Unbelief says, let me see and I will believe. God says, believe and then you will see. In his third illustration, Jesus uses a lamp to point out that where to be a light to this world. Lamps were very important, were a very important commodity in Jesus' days. They were typically made of clay, which contained liquid olive oil and a simple wick. These oil lamps weren't bright and only gave, up, gave off a small amount of flickering light. So in order to get the most out of it, the lamp had to be put on a clay lampstand in the middle of the room and let its rays flutter or filter out into the dark corners. So you see, it would be foolish. And it wouldn't make sense for a person to place it in the cellar or under a blanket. Why? Because it's not meant to be hidden. It's it's meant to shine bright for anyone who will come in. It's meant to shine bright for the benefit of others. What he was conveying here with this verse is that God is the one who has lit the lamp. In the person and work of of the Lord Jesus, he provided a blaze of illumination for the world. If anyone doesn't see that light, 
It isn't God's fault. Now the time, the last time he used a similar illustration was back in Luke chapter 8. There, Jesus was speaking of the responsibility of those who were already his disciples to spread the faith and not hide it under a vessel. However, here in verse 33, he's exposing the unbelief of the group that were challenging his authority. Then in verses 34 to 36, he gets to the point. Your eye is the lamp of the body. A good eye will provide light within the entire body. On the other hand, a bad eye will rob the body of any hope of light and cast it into darkness. Take care then, Jesus said, that the light in you is not darkness. So how does a person do this? How do you do this? Well, to do it effectively, you must, be willi- you must willingly allow the word of Jesus to enter your life and illuminate your body. The more you do this, the brighter your body will shine with the light and the dark deeds of evil will find no place. The lesson here is that one must have open eyes basically faith, to see that Jesus is the power, the sign, and the light from God. Now, if you keep one eye on the things of God and on the other, and the other eye on the world, the light will turn into darkness. So again, you see, there is no twilight living for the Christian. For God demands total submission and obedience, one or the other, light or darkness. This means again that at this very moment, each and every single one of us is controlled either by light or by darkness. The frightening thing is, is that some people have so much heart in their hearts, how much they've, they've hardened themselves so much against the Lord that they can't see the difference. They think they're following the light when in reality they're following the darkness. Like the scribes and the Pharisees who claimed to see the light as they studied the law, they too were also living in darkness. When the light of God's word shines, when the, when the word and work of Jesus is understood, then one does not walk in darkness, in the darkness of spiritual blindness. He walks in the light of God. Let me end by reminding you, our title, to pick, to pick a side. In this spiritual world, in this life of ours, spiritually, we can't remain neutral. You can't remain neutral. You you have to pick a side, and whether you know it or not, you're, you're already on a side. My hope that is after hearing this message that you would have chosen to be on God's side, to be on the right side of the fence, the winning side of the fence. Why choose to be part of the world, to be obedient to the world, to be obedient to your flesh, to be obedient to... You're, what's, what's the point? Where is that going to get you? It's just going to cause more problems, more issues in your life. But being on God's side is going to bless you. It's going to change you. It's going to transform you. It's a matter of surrendering, letting go of your pride, letting go of your selfishness, and just surrendering completely to Him. You must pick a side. Let me share with you one more quote from C.S. Lewis. He said this, When the author walks onto the stage, the play is over. God is going to invade all right. But what is the good of saying you're on his side then when, when you see the whole 
natural universe melting away like a dream and something else comes crashing in. This time it will be God without disguise. Something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time it will be the time when we discover which side we've really chosen, whether we realize it before or not. Now, today, this moment is your choice, is your chance to choose the right side. So if you're listening and watching and you're, you want to be on the right side, you want to surrender your life to Christ, you know and realize your need for Him, then I want you to close your eyes and bow your head. And with all honesty, with all your heart, pray this. Jesus, forgive me. Forgive me of all my sins. I know I've blown it, and I know I've fallen short. I believe that God sent you to die on the cross for my sins. I believe that you hung there on the cross, and you bled and you died to forgive me. So now I lay my sins upon the cross and ask you to clean me thoroughly from all my sins to wipe me clean. I confess Jesus is Lord. I believe in him that he rose and died, that he died and rose from the grave three days later. And I believe that he's sitting at your right hand right now. Thank you for forgiving me, Jesus. And now fill me with your spirit. Fill me with your love. Empty me of all the junk, anything else that remains, and just fill me. Help me to fall in love with you even more, Lord. Speak to me powerfully. Teach me, show me. Thank you for making me born again. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.